old pilots playing tales. The wonderful life of Brian. As Boeing comes out from under the dark cloud that has hung over them since the loss of two Boeing 737 Maxes, I'm looking back more than 53 years to the first flight of a 737 and the man at the controls that day. His name may be unknown to many of us, but I'm sure by now that you know of my interest in such people. The ones that are not quite household names, but definitely deserve to be. Any of Brian Weigel's achievements would be enough for most of us to dine out on for the rest of our lives. A World War II pilot who was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, given for acts of valour, courage or devotion to duty whilst flying in active operations against the enemy. A man who flew hump missions in a venerable C-47 and who saw three of his comrades go down in a single day. A pilot who volunteered to fly bombing missions for the fledgling Israeli Air Force who taught Howard Hughes to fly jet aircraft and who became a notable test pilot and yet was one of the most unassuming people you'd ever want to meet. His life started in Seattle back in 1924. His mother was English and his father Canadian, but the Great Depression was looming, and in response, when he was still a toddler, his family moved to settle on his grandfather's farm near Crossfield, not far from Calgary. Eventually, the whole family would be re-naturalized as Canadian citizens. When he was 10 years old, Brian had his first momentous experience with an aircraft. A flying doctor was having engine trouble and he made a precautionary landing at the ranch. I'd never seen an aeroplane close up, Brian recalled. We were all fascinated. The pilot himself was a heroic figure with his flying helmet and goggles. That started my older brother and me on an aviation career. Their interest was fed by a wonderful aviation magazine called Bill Barnes Air Trails. It was perfect flying fodder for the two youngsters, keen to find out all they could about this exciting world that existed up in the skies. With tempting articles like Aviation is growing fast. Get into it now. Aviation is a young industry for young ambitious men. Aviation is a profession in which a young man like yourself can make good money quickly, with opportunities ahead for bigger and better jobs. Aviation jobs pay $40, $60, $75 a week and up to many. Aviation is no cheapskate game. It can't be. It's absolutely necessary to have high types, well-trained men, for only in that way can the airlines build and maintain the remarkable record for speed, economy, and more important, safety that they have today. A little young to get straight into a career, they read with fascination stories which told of Hideous treachery fed embers of hate that smouldered still within ancient evil ruins. Treachery that threatened to blast Bill Barnes from the sky. 
the eagerly read, the blood-red road to Petra, and other great Bill Barnes novels of air adventure. They learned about careers in aeronautical engineering, the latest aircraft to grace the skies, such as the Supermarine Spitfire One, latest British fighter with a Rolls-Royce steam-cooled engine, which was called the world's fastest military plane. Details are guarded. They penciled in the aeronautical crossword puzzles, pondering over clues like air slang for fog and initials for what good planes get from the government. The best bit for the budding aviators, though, was the model workshop with its exciting plans for such models as the Brown B-3 custom-built sports plane, powered by six strands of one-eighth-inch brown rubber. They could read about the results of the national meet at Detroit, where six British model builders took the Wakefield Trophy, the grand old mug of model building, back to Britain. The brothers ordered model aircraft from the ads in the magazine and took some of their better efforts to a meet at Calgary in 1939. We entered gas-powered models and a couple of rubber-powered models, but that day there was an air show, Brian said in an interview. A flight of three hurricanes came over, and they did a low-level flyover, and those beautiful Merlins made that beautiful Merlin sound, and that captivated me. I didn't know there was a war coming on, but from then on, my objective was that I was going to be an Air Force pilot. In 1942, Brian turned 18, and he joined the Royal Canadian Air Force. He was delighted to be chosen to train as a pilot, but Hugh, his older brother, was a little less content after being selected to train as an observer. Brian was sent to the RCAF station of Brandon, Manitoba. It was part of the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, a massive joint military aircrew training program created by the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. It remains the largest single aviation training program in history, responsible for training nearly half of the pilots, navigators, bomb aimers, air gunners, wireless operators and flight engineers who served in all of the participating countries' air forces during the war. Brian would have trained on a variety of aircraft, such as the Canadian-built Tiger Moth, Boeing Stearman from over the border, and possibly the indigenous-designed and produced Fleet Finch biplane. He would have spent hours being bounced about on the wheezing bellows that supported the crude Link Trainer, nicknamed the Blue Box, a very early flight simulator used to hone the budding pilot's instrument flying skills. Destined to fly multi-engine cargo aircraft, Brian most likely spent hours aloft in the Cessna Crane twin-engine advanced trainer as well. Training complete, Brian was sent overseas to Europe as a combat cargo pilot, flying the workhorse of the armed forces, the Douglas C-47 Dakota. Then, just before D-Day, he was transferred to India flying with the Canadian squadrons in East India near the Burmese border. 
He carried supplies of food, ammunition, fuel and troops between India, China and Burma for the fight against Japanese forces. Brian Weigel flew the hump, those dangerous and difficult missions over the Himalayas that were no less dangerous than their rough destination airfields. Flying over the hump proved to be an extremely hazardous undertaking. The air route wound its way into high mountains and deep gorges between North Burma and West China, where violent turbulence, winds up to 200 miles an hour, Severe icing and other dreadful weather conditions were a regular occurrence. Lack of suitable navigation equipment, radio beacons and inadequate numbers continually affected airlift operations. Exhausted crews flew as many as three round trips every day. As a result, the loss rate was appalling, with over 600 aircraft being lost or unaccounted for during these supply missions. When the British ground forces in Burma first turned to the offensive, their efforts took the form of long-range penetration raids into northern Burma by Brigadier Wingate's Chindits. Wingate's men were supplied by airdrops from the Dakotas. The technique was expanded to include the establishment of semi-permanent strongholds, which incorporated air landing strips behind the Japanese lines. Cargo was either airdropped or landed on short, rough airstrips hacked out of the jungle, many of them situated in winding valleys and requiring extremely steep approaches and takeoffs. More than once, the unarmed Canadian aircraft had to rely on ultra low level maneuvers to escape Japanese fighters in the area, and many were shot down. After experiencing the hair-rising flying conditions in the Asian theatre, as the war drew to a close, Brian returned to Europe and then back to Canada. But he returned alone. In 1943, his brother had been shot down and killed in a Mitchell B-25 somewhere over the North Sea. Brian took advantage of the post-war veterans' assistance, attending the mechanical engineering program at the University of British Columbia. Whilst there, he joined the Royal Canadian Air Force Auxiliary Squadron and flew Harvards, Mustangs and the jet-powered de Havilland Vampire. He said, It was my first jet. It was also my first tricycle landing gear aircraft. It was a remarkable little airplane and a lot of fun to fly. After graduation, Brian applied without success to be an experimental test pilot with Avro de Havilland Canada and Canadair. In 1948, he took time out to return to war when he flew bombing missions for the fledgling Israeli Air Force. The IAF's first military-grade pilots were all foreign volunteers, both Jewish and non-Jewish, mainly World War II veterans who wanted to collaborate with Israel's struggle for independence. Then, thanks to a post-war law enacted in the United States for repatriating Americans who had joined foreign air forces for the war, Brian was given U.S. citizenship. I was a minor when I joined the Canadian Air Force, and although I had no intention of doing anything with American citizenship, 
The fact was that I was covered by that congressional law by accident. To this day, I have dual citizenship, Brian explained. Unable to find employment in Canada, he wrote to American aviation companies still without success. At his wit's end, he called his father, asking if he had any friends in Seattle who might be able to connect him with Boeing. His father told him to visit his brother's godfather, a Mr. Thwing, who worked for the Seattle First National Bank. He drove his rattly old car to Seattle and asked if Mr. Thwing could assist. He said, "'Well, Brian, I know the chief pilot with that help.' Yes, Mr. Thwing, said Brian, laughing. He picked up the phone and called Boeing's Elliot Merrill. He turned to me and asked, Do you have an engineering degree? Yes, Elliot, he has an engineering degree. Do you have jet time? Uh, yes, Elliot, he has jet time. That was the golden key. But I didn't tell him that I had my jet time in the Vampire, one of the smallest jets on the planet. Brian was interviewed that very day, which heralded the beginning of a 40-year career with Boeing. He moved to Wichita with his new wife and family and immediately joined the B-47 Stratojet bomber program as a production co-pilot. He was quickly promoted to first pilot and then to experimental test pilot. After graduating from the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School in 1953, Brian returned to Seattle, becoming the lead project pilot for the B-52 Stratofortress bomber. Then he moved to the commercial side of things and did flight testing of the 707 airliner. He was promoted to assistant director of flight test in 1966, and then on the 9th of April 1967, with Lou Wallach beside him, he flew the maiden test flight of the brand-new Boeing 737. He knew it flew well, but he said, Fifty years ago, we had no idea. We were hoping to eventually sell enough to break even, but the 737 took the aviation world by storm and has been improved steadily since. It obviously filled an incredible need. When asked by a reporter what he thought about the new aeroplane, Boeing's president, Bill Allen, replied, I think that they'll be building this aeroplane when Bill Allen is in an old man's home. He was right, and on the 13th of March 2018, the 10,000th 737 was delivered. That first aircraft was used as a Boeing test aircraft until 1973, and then sold to NASA, where it was put to use as a flying research laboratory. NASA eventually donated the aircraft to the Seattle Museum of Flight, where it was lovingly restored. When not working at Boeing, Brian picked up an unusual hobby. He became a record-setting hydroplane pilot. Seattle didn't have major sports at the time. The population was much lower, he said. People would flock to the water to watch the races. It was pretty bumpy, and you're driving at incredibly fast speeds. My rudder broke off once. I was doing about 160 miles an hour at the time. My boat did a 360 at high speed. In 1969, 
Brian was sitting in the co-pilot seat for the very first flight of the Boeing 747. During his 28 years as an active test pilot, he also flew the 727, the 757 and the 767, logging time in all of Boeing's contemporary planes. He was elected a Fellow of both the Society of Experimental Test Pilots and the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Later, as Boeing's head of test flight, Brian was an early champion of women in aviation, giving them opportunities to excel in a previously all-male field. Far from the Hollywood stereotype of a macho test pilot, Brian had a quiet gentlemanly presence and gladly offered his time as a mentor to anyone passionate about aviation. He sponsored minority engineering students at the University of Washington. He volunteered to tutor adults seeking their GEDs. He was one of the founders of the Museum of Flight and sat on its boards for many years. And he didn't just work to advance women and minority engineers, he assisted less fortunate people with gifts of tuition or cash. I just felt I should be doing something, and I love to help young people, he said. Just before he retired, Brian took to flying aerobatic biplanes, and after he finally gave up work, he and some partners built and flew a Glacier 2RG. He flew that little plane between Seattle and Sun Valley at 200 miles an hour. He loved flying, and only gave it up when his hearing finally required it at the age of 84. A true aviator, who made countless key contributions to the field of aviation throughout his career at Boeing, during what he called the golden age of commercial jet transportation. A true gentleman, humble, kind, generous, smart and supportive. He personified the old Boeing, said a lifelong friend. Brian Weigel passed away very recently at the age of 96. If you enjoy Plain Tales, then why not help us out by letting your friends know about it on social media? Or perhaps you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find that at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>